Welcome to the Game Dev Field Guide bonus episode number six. Today's special guest, Jonathan Jennings. Today's episode is sponsored by our patrons. Our bonus episodes aren't exclusive content, there's no time delays, everyone gets it for free, and it's all thanks to the generosity of the patrons. So yeah, I just want to give a big thank you to our patrons. If you'd like to become a patron and be one of these people supporting these free episodes, as well as voting on episode topics and a special Discord role, I'll leave a link to the Patreon in the show notes. With the intro out of the way, let's move on over to our first segment, which is everyone's favorite game, Buff Debuff. Buff Debuff is a segment of our show where people in the Discord post topics, usually in like one sentence or one word, and I don't do any research, I just say what's on the top of my head based on what they said, and I give you a quick opinion about it. It's kind of more of a quick-fire segment rather than sort of the deep dives in the main episode. But yeah, it's a fun game. Um, If I say something is buff, that means I think it's trending up or improving or just in general good. And if something's debuffed, that just means that it's trending down or kind of moving in the wrong direction or just in general, not something I am a fan of. Of course, all of this is my first opinion. Uh, Like I said, it's not researched. So yeah, I could be wrong about some of these things, and if you think I'm wrong, feel free to tweet at me or reach out to me on the Discord, and yeah, let's have a discussion about it. Today's first topic is Kickstarter funding, and specifically the policy of meeting your target or getting nothing. The policy, to me, I think, is debuffed, and I never really understood why they do it that way. It seems like, let's say you raised... I don't know, 50% of your goal, which was $25,000 instead of 50000 why wouldn't you just make a project for, like, reduce the scope of your project so you could use $25,000? I always thought that was weird about Kickstarter, and I'm sure there's a perfectly good reason for it. Maybe if you only get, like, 50% of your goal, then it shows you that the project won't be a success. And maybe that's the way they see it. But yeah, I think more and more these days, Kickstarters are being treated as like basically just pre-orders for a project. So yeah, if you can only make pre-order sales of $25,000 and you needed fifty, well, you better reduce the scope of your projects so that you can get it done with twenty-five k. But I'm sure there are good reasons why they do it the way they do it, the all or nothing. I just don't know what they are. And so because of my own <laughs> ignorance, I guess... Uh, the policy of all or nothing on Kickstarter funding is debuffed. Next topic we have is localization. If you don't know what localization is, that's just where you convert like all of your texts, your story, anything really that you communicate. Um, you want to localize that to different regions of the world. Specifically, what comes to mind is language. Being an indie dev in the U.S., obviously all of my stuff is in English. I can tell you from the statistics of the show, we have people who listen from all over the world where English may not be the first language. And 
if they'd like to play a game I made, um, maybe they'd like to play it in their native language. So typically you would pay a translator or someone who is like a professional localizer, I guess. And it isn't always just like a straight up translation. Sometimes it's even localizing like themes or mythology. But yeah, I think localization is buffed. The person who actually posted this in the Discord, um, Defrag, brought up the point, especially cost versus benefit for small budget indie games. I think it's buffed even with the cost versus benefit because one, I've never actually localized the game or paid someone to do it, so you know I may be speaking out of hand here, but the last time I checked, I don't remember it being that expensive. And I think it opens up your game to a huge new market. Let's just say you did in Spanish. Well, the Spanish-speaking market on Steam has got to be huge. And we recently talked about marketing your games and how many games come out on Steam like a week. And if you can set yourself apart by having a Spanish localization, then for those people who maybe have their steam set to default by spanish the it's just a simple odds that there's going to be less games that have a spanish option and so you're going to make your game stand out a little more against the competition for those people who are spanish first i guess so yeah i think localization as a business move is definitely buffed and i think even from a video game uh, move even if you were just only interested in making the best game you could I think localizing it so that the context of let's say the story um, is preserved across languages so yeah for that localization is buffed the next topic is season passes to me I'm kind of I don't know I'm kind of neutral on season passes <laughs> I'm not really even I don't see it as buffed or debuffed on one hand, I think it's an improvement from kind of the loot box, Skinner box designs, which I think was pretty predatory. So yeah, in that sense, it's buffed. On the whole, I don't know, I think it's just an, a new way of kind of squeezing or extracting more value out of your game. And I think it's here to stay, but like as a player, I think it's kind of debuffed. I saw a really good tweet in reference to the new Halo Infinite, their like policy of season passes, and someone tweeted that they felt old because a kid had told them, what's the point of even playing a game if there's nothing to unlock or something along those lines? Like if there's no season pass or something to work towards, what's the point of playing a game? And I remember like back in the day, you played Halo just because it was fun. You weren't really unlocking anything. Maybe there was like a few armor sets, but that wasn't the core focus. The core focus was just that the game was fun. And we've talked before about progression and unlocks and keeping your player engaged with like long-term goals. And I see how a season pass is basically doing this. But yeah, that one tweet really like struck me to my core. I was, I really thought about it. I was like, man, yeah, it's almost like all these mainstream games have season passes now. And people forgot that we used to just play games for fun. But yeah, listening to myself, I sound like an old person. <laughs> I think uh, season passes are here to stay. And I do think you can combine them with a fun game and they can be positive 
can be kind of like a fulfilling progression or goal to work towards, like we've talked about before. So yeah, with that on season passes, I hope you can see how in some senses it's buffed, in some it's debuffed, and I find myself currently in the middle. The next topic is indie devs versus triple A, and whether or not indie devs can compete with triple A. And I guess I'll just say that I think um, I think this matchup, indie devs versus triple A, is buffed for indie devs. As a commercial adventure, um, I think triple A's strength is that they're going to have great marketing. But triple A comes with a lot of negatives that, for me as someone who makes games, um, even if it's harder... To like be commercially successful, especially because it's going to be hard to get seen um, from a marketing standpoint. I'd rather be an indie dev because there's less of like corporate stuff you got to go through or weird decision making processes. Like as an indie dev, you have a pretty strong control over the projects you work on. Even if you're working in a team, I think a small indie team still has a lot of control over the each like individual aspects that they work on and so yeah if the question is can indie devs compete with AAA, I think absolutely they can and in that matchup I actually prefer indie devs I think a lot more risks come out of it which leads to more creative games and yeah if you think about it some of the biggest games to come out in the last five years have all been indie games so they're definitely right in the mix with triple a so for that uh indie devs versus triple a i'm gonna say that's a buffed for indie devs next topic is the eShop, which i think is the name of nintendo's like online store and this is the topic is actually publishing on the eShop. I think this is definitely buffed. We have seen on the Switch Nintendo being a lot more open to indie games and getting them on the eShop, which is not a policy they've had previously. And yeah, it's one of those things where you find a whole new potential pool of customers on the Switch. The crossover between people who own a Switch and own like a PC with the Steam account is a smaller it's a smaller chunk I guess there's a whole nother chunk of people who exclusively own a Switch and maybe have never seen your game before so if you can get it on the eShop that's a whole new pool of potential customers I think putting your game in as many places on as many consoles as possible is a good strategy or tactic from a commercial standpoint. So for that, publishing on eShop is buffed. And the last topic for today is gotm.io publishing program. This is not something I've heard of before, but luckily in the post, Yanny Boy explains what it is. He says they will port your Godot game to Switch for free and publish it as long as they can have your source code and 70% of the revenue on the first $4,000 of profit. I am really, really wary of publishing contracts like this because a lot of them are extremely predatory towards the developer. Publishers in general, I think, are kind of predatory towards developers, so you really gotta like dig deep into the contract and make sure everything in it is advantageous to you i mean you have all the leverage the publishers don't exist unless there's 
people to make games. And the internet and kind of the infrastructure that the internet has built and platforms like Steam and itch.io are starting to kind of make it so that you don't really need a publisher anymore. Really, the big advantage to a publisher in my eyes is the extra marketing funds. And even marketing now is getting to the point where you can do it yourself with some pretty powerful marketing and social media tools. And even if you don't want to do it yourself, you can just hire someone who does it professionally. Like, you contract a specific person to go do it. You don't have to go to a publisher. And the same, I would say, goes for porting something to Switch. Um, It seems like if it were my decision and I had the money up front, I would just pay a team to port it. Even though, like on Unity, for instance, I think porting it would be pretty simple. So yeah, this publishing program, I, I don't know anything about it. This is the first time I've ever heard of it. I haven't looked into it. But my initial reaction is that it's debuffed. It sounds a little fishy, and I am just naturally skeptic of publishers. So, you know, maybe that's my own perspective kind of influencing my opinion. But yeah, publishing programs like this one, I think, in general, are debuffed. There may be a few diamonds in the rough that truly just want to help. And it can be a um, beneficial to both parties arrangement. But I think you really got to pay attention to the contract and make sure that is the truth. So with Buff Debuff out of the way, let's move on over to the second segment of our show, which is, of course, a key thought from a special guest. Today's special guest is Jonathan Jennings. And today he's going to give a key thought on pre-production and sort of prototyping and the kind of method of using diagrams to sort of solidify or maybe just guide the idea of your game in the pre-production phase. It's a really great talk and one that I got a few tips that I'm going to start using in my own uh, projects. So yeah, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jonathan Jennings. Hello, everybody. Uh, It is an absolute pleasure to be a part of this episode of the Game Dev Field Guide. I was approached to participate in this podcast after creating a mini-talk called The Power of Prototyping, But when trying to translate it, it kind of evolved. And so today instead, we're going to talk about effective pre-production for your games, how diagrams and prototypes can be used to frame and outline key aspects of your gameplay experience. Um, But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. First, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Jonathan Jennings, and I am a software engineer and game designer who specializes in mobile games, VR, AR, and XR projects in general. I've been in the games and games-adjacent tech industry for over nine and a half years, graduated from college with a bachelor in games and simulation programming back in 2011. Today, I've worked on around 24 published titles, which include mobile games, Steam VR projects, a Magic Leap application, Windows Phone work for when that was a thing, augmented reality applications, and much more. Some of the more popular projects I've worked on have been edutainment mobile card game Animal Planet Wildlands, Tower Defense anti-smoking game Flavor Monsters, Twitchy arcade action game Thunderjack's Logrunner, which I'll mention a lot today, 
first-person mobile VR shooter Ghostbusters VR now hiring for the Google Cardboard, an automotive XR research app titled Relay Cars, and in the last six months, I've participated in Ludendar 48 to lead development for Sonder Story, which is available for free on itch.io. And I recently released my indie VR game, Galactic Bar Fight, which is available to play now on the Oculus Quest and just surpassed 10,000 downloads and 8,000 unique players total. And our team, Weird Kid Studios, will be uploading a pretty massive update next month, so please keep an eye out for that. All that is to say I love video games, and like many other game devs, I've loved them for all my life since before I could even read. And I've relished having a career where I could work on them, teach people about creating them, and share that passion with others. Which brings me back to today's discussion about effective pre-production, and which will mostly focus on prototyping and mocking up diagrams for gameplay experiences. So to me, prototypes are exploratory investments. There are ways to spend a little time to investigate a concept, an idea, a project. Uh, If we compared it to drawing an image, prototyping allows you to create an outline for the image. Even if all the intricate details aren't yet figured out, you're still defining the shape of your game experience and how it feels and functions as an overall experience. I want to make the distinction between a prototype and a vertical slice. A vertical slice is usually kind of like a small demo or a sliver of a a larger production. Usually it has some level of polish and it's a demonstration piece to get investor buy-in or gather public interest in your title. So prototypes to me have more internal value in the areas of research and defining the experience, whereas vertical slices are more external facing and made to get the outside world invested into your team and project. One of my favorite industry stories is about the development of Super Mario 64 and its early prototyping process. I've read that for a solid year, Shigeru Miyamoto and the Mario 64 team focused only on developing the movement and motion systems. The goal was to make sure each and every independent action that the player did felt fun. With this being at the beginning of the 3D platformer genre as we know it today, that was a huge investment, but one I think the entire industry has benefited from for decades. An exploration to make sure every butt stop, gliding motion, wall jump, ground slide, long jump, backflip, or other motion felt fun to execute. That's the kind of internal exploration and prototyping I hope we all would be willing to invest in. Maybe not for a year, but just taking time to explore a mechanic and make sure it feels right, solid, and valuable both in terms of our team's internal vision and understanding the play experience we want to craft for our players. Using this story as an example, I think it's safe to say building a prototype is setting the foundation for your game. It's establishing the core repeatable mechanics and taking fine-tuning and adjusting them to find the sweet spot for what feels good as a player and functions the best as a hopefully scalable design for future gameplay systems. So let's talk steps. How do we get to the point of building our first prototype? Prototypes are about action, and I believe the best way to frame the action is to doodle, draw, sketch, and when I'm working in VR or AR content, I actually act out the motions I want the player to do to achieve whatever functionality I'm building. For Galactic Bar Fight, I've acted out everything from the power-up consumption mechanics, the gun pointing and aiming, and even simple UI button taps for our hologram UI menus. Like I said at the beginning, prototyping is about action. So first and foremost, you have to know what you want your player to be doing in-game and what the expected outcome for the player is in planning that action. For example, dodge rolls help you move out of danger quickly. 
uppercuts launch opponents in the air and opens them up to juggle attacks. A jump from one platform to the other is an exciting leap of faith and a test of timing and precision. It's all action-based, and those actions tend to chain into other sub-actions the player can follow with, up with in gameplay too. What you're doing when you sketch or mock up the play experience is establishing the language of your game mechanics. These actions, skills, and motions are going to determine your level design, some of your character designs and animations, enemy attacks to counter the player, and obstacles which you may use to make navigating the environment challenging. Defining this language of core mechanics and adjusting them is what I think makes us fall in love with some of our favorite games. I also do some mentoring, and one of the biggest questions that challenges young developers is simply asking them, what do players do in your game? I'm a firm believer if you don't understand the action in your game, you'd probably be better off making it into a short film or a short story in a more passive medium, because games are about interactivity. That interactivity, even if it's very simple, has to be at the heart of the experience. So I'd love to share a story of the first prototype I was paid to deliver, and how it served as a foundation for the rest of the game experience's development. In 2014, I was working at an organization known as Fuel Entertainment on its new internal Fuel Games team. We were just coming off developing a mobile virtual puppet show project. The studio had been working to develop for years, and we were nearing the shipping date. So the studio gave us a chance to develop whatever game our dev team wanted once we published. Our senior producer at the time, Nick Falzon, who hired me out of college years prior and worked on countless tiles I loved growing up, was investigating the mobile games market and twitchy screen-tapping games such as uh, Flappy Bird, which were pretty popular at the time. So he called for a team meeting and pitched to us that we build this game where we have a little character in the center of the screen and their goal was to bounce on a barrel, log, or something while they are slowly floating down a river. The goal being to balance the character as long as possible with this being more of a game of endurance rather than having a core win condition to achieve. This game would eventually become Thunderjack's Log Runner, one of my favorite projects to ever work on. Um, as he was explaining the idea, a picture of how it should work, look and work mechanically popped into my head and wouldn't go away. He assigned the project to another engineer, but I was fixated, and after the other engineer made little to no progress over a few days, I took it upon myself to design a small diagram in the middle of the night, laying out how I believe the game experience should work mechanically and how I envisioned building it given the opportunity. So I want to talk about the, that first production diagram I made, and I'm going to try not to get too deep into the gritty details, but I do want to cover how mentally I broke down his description of the game and how I processed it into a full functioning experience. I may include the actual diagram in the show notes or Discord after this episode releases to give listeners a better understanding of what I drew out. So for the diagram, first and foremost, I drew a little stick character in the center of the screen, whose whole goal is to stay balanced and not fall off. Just as a concept, what I grasped when he first described that was a system where the player wanted to achieve equilibrium and had to balance between two extremes. So in math terms, there was a minimum value and a maximum value. The player's goal was to stay within those two constraints. Essentially, I needed a balance number, and perfect balance would be zero, not leaning to the left or right at all. So on my diagram above the little stick figure's head, I drew an oval with a zero to show they were perfectly centered, perfectly balanced, and perfectly within the minimum and maximum range. 
to the left of our stick figure, I created minimum range uh, uh, or extreme, which was negative 15, which I did for the ma for math reasons, trying to divide a 90 degree angle evenly. And to the right side, I drew a positive 15, representing the maximum bound. The idea was this bounce number always had to be between negative 15 and positive 15 for the player to remain in play. Otherwise, the player would lose and their current run would end. This created the basic rules for losing state, and since our game was essentially an endurance run, helped us define what it meant uh, to the player to remain in play. So remember, our balance number is the core of our whole gameplay experience. We want the player to maintain the character's balance as close to zero as possible. So next I figured we should think about how to manipulate that balance number from the player's perspective. In the diagram I drew, I found two stamps of, uh, of hands, and placed them to the left and right of our stick person. And then on the left side, I added a negative one to show that when the left side of a phone or tablet screen was put pressed or tapped, it would um, subtract from the current bounce number. And I also placed a plus one on the right side of the diagram to show how a string tap on the right side uh, would positively influence the bounce number. It's simple math and based off of the value of the bounce number, we'd apply some mathematical rotation to update the player's position and give the sense that the character is leaning in either direction. Tapping the screen to slide the player left or right is cool, but we needed to have a sense of gravity that made balancing challenging, just for a core perspective. Um, so invis some invisible force constantly affecting the player's ability to maintain that perfect balance. So to simulate this gravity, we'd see which direction the player was leaning, and about three or four times a second, we'd apply a gravity value of negative one or plus plus one to our bounce number to tip the player to the left or right on the log. It was all to make sure the player felt like they were constantly fighting to maintain balance. At this point, the design diagram for Thunderjack was done, and I sent the diagram image to our senior producer and CC'd our entire team before going to bed. The next morning when I showed up at work, I was asked to explain the diagram to the entire team. I guess the diagram was easily understandable, and my explanation was decent, so my producer asked me how long I thought it would take to make a prototype of this experience, and I told him I estimated four days, and he gave me the four days. The team members who was uh, pre the team member who was previously assigned the project offered me uh, much needed support in finishing the prototype, and then we would present it to our producer, who would then present it to the executive team. So before moving forward to describe building the prototype and lessons we learned while doing that, I want to talk a little bit about the value of creating this simple diagram, which be would be core to the development of the full project over the next year and a half. We answered a few questions with the diagram. First of all, what is our stage going to look like for this game? What will the player see when looking at the play space? I drew a simple mock-up, but it's a mock-up that gives the most valuable perspective and allows plenty of viewing space. So it helped us frame the game very early on for the future art and design team's consideration and involvement. Secondly, we established some hard rules and ways for players to interact with within those rules. If the player's bounce number ever goes less than or equal to negative 15 or greater than equal to 15, then they lose, the game is over, we score and we score them based off of how long it takes them to fall. So we established a time-based scoring system in the process. Thirdly, we defined the interactions of the player. A left or right screen tap was going to be their most repeated interaction, and those left or right screen taps manipulating our balance number was the heart of our game experience. 
The biggest thing to appreciate here to me, though, is we solidified our core gameplay systems before we ever wrote a single line of code, before we ever created a game design doc, before we created any mock-ups. It was just a piece of paper holding our design vision and became our anchor for better or worse for the course of the rest of development. Speaking of how prototyping is about action, I think this diagram really clearly expressed the core of the action in our game, purely from a player level. What would the player be doing and how would it work? And I think the sooner you figure that out in any game dev process, the better your game will turn out. So moving forward, next we began developing the prototype. And since we've established how the core worked, I'm going to fast forward a bit to some of the lessons we learned in the prototyping stage. In the act of prototyping, what we found was that balancing the character was neat. It was cool tapping to fight against the gravity, except that got boring fast because the goal was just to maintain that perfect balance of zero. So we started adding small additional features such as random gusts of wind that would blow you to the left or right, which added some randomness, randomness to the experience. This made things way more engaging because you could be perfectly balanced and be tossed to the left or right. You could be on the edge of losing and being blow, be blown back into the center. It just made the gameplay more variable and dynamic. In addition to the wind, we made little fish that would try to crash into the player and cause an instant loss. But the player could the, but the players could jump over them with proper timing and tapping a jump button in the center of the screen. These really made the gameplay exciting because it wasn't just about balance anymore. It was now about timing too, and anticipating the fish's jumping timing while maintaining the balance number created a nice healthy tension. So the diagram was about mapping out the game experience. And the prototype was about massaging and playing with individual components and trying to find the sweet spot for engaging content. We asked and answered a few questions. How do we make the players anxious but not overwhelmed? How do we throw obstacles at them that are surprising but don't feel cheap or like we are cheating them? For us in Thunderjack, a lot of that comes down to timing. We massage throughout the prototyping stage and further massage later in, produ in production. When we finished that prototype, we handed it to our producer, he presented it to the executives, and we were greenlit to develop the full project. This early exploration of mechanics, of features, of drawing out our design concept made Thunderjack into a quality experience. I think of all the games I've worked on, that was my favorite, and particularly because of that early time we invested in exploring those core mechanics. And as the project grew and expanded, we had such a solid and simple foundation that when we brought on a dedicated lead designer, he was able to take the rules and bounds we'd already implemented and amplified the gameplay around them further. I've worked on dozens of games at this point in my career, and there are parallels to what we did on Thunderjack I've seen on multiple other projects, and I still consider a part of my own development process even today. So I want to point them out so that they may make your own prototyping experiences richer and more valuable for your team, organization, and you personally. So first and foremost, diagrams, prototypes, and pre-production is about establishing the core rules which drive your game experience. The action, as we described earlier. Whether it's a balance number, a health count, a number of lives, you want to figure out what the most important values in your game are. These are the numbers or values which drive your experience and really establish how well your player is or isn't, during, do, isn't doing during gameplay. Whether it's combo counts, remaining mana, health values, points scored, these are just some potential key values. In a more recent game title of mine, Sonder A Story, our core value was actually in the hidden effects of clickable objects around an environment. 
There are objects in the environment you will only see if you interact with other objects. There are objects which, when clicked, hide other objects. And there are objects which will transport you to a different space, so that if you didn't view an item in the last room, certain endings are locked off. For Sonder, we were trying to create an atmosphere of exploration and searching, and awareness of the spaces the player was in. And it was fascinating reading the reviews, how invested people were in the idea that they hadn't searched the room adequately, giving our project a surprising amount of replay value for what can easily be a five or six minute gameplay experience. So it doesn't have to be a literal number. It comes down to defining the intention and goals of your players, whether they're tapping a screen to balance on a log or clicking around a room to find a hidden makeup kit. It's all about understanding what you're giving your players to accomplish and how those core simple interactions and actions power their experience. Our second point of focus after we've already defined our core values is then to define our input mechanisms. For Thunderjack, it was screen taps. Sonder, it was mouse clicks. For my game Galactic Bar Fight, it's trigger pulls and arm swings as you shoot VR blasters and swing melee cyber weapons. Because these will directly influence how your players manipulate and traverse the environments we give them to explore. The question you should be asking is, how will my players accomplish X? How do they select or utilize particular skills? How do they trigger a special ability? How do they hurt this particular enemy? What tools are you giving your player to accomplish in-game tasks? What do they utilize and know to utilize those tools? I think sound effects are great in helping communicate abilities to players. Nothing like a great sound indicating a special attack is already triggering right as you finish a combo to make the player feel like they are in the perfect are in a perfect fluid motion. Going back to Mario 64, the woohoo Mario lets out when you time your jump button presses and deliver a well-timed triple jump is another example of using audio to indicate a player's execution of a specific action. Thirdly is where the massaging comes in, and some of the best massaging in my experience comes from really hammering down timing for mechanics. Prototypes are usually kind of clunky. You build them to get a good sense of how the game should work, and then you spend time to refine those systems to make sure they feel good and flow nicely together. Usually that's a byproduct of good timing and understanding a certain ebb and flow of your player's engagement during gameplay. Once you've outlined your core values, you've staged your play space, you've defined your player's input mechanisms and how they'll accomplish activities in-game, and you've invested a little time into refining the timing and smoothness of the mechanics, you'll have made a solid proof of concept and hopefully a core for your game that others can buy into and give you a solid foundation to build the rest of your project on top of. Most importantly, I'd say building a prototype is about creating enough of the game to have deeper and more interesting conversations later on. The conversations we had week three into Thunderjack were very different than the conversations we had week 24 into Thunderjack. Your goal is in crafting a prototype is to see if you and your team can define the value in creating this type of game experience and then gradually building on that core. I hope this was valuable to you and you learned something from me discussing effective pre-production in your games and some of the tools and considerations to keep in mind as you develop your game concept. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions or would like to discuss some of the stuff we've covered today, you can reach out to me on Twitter at JohnnyJ17. 
You can always um, contact me on LinkedIn. I'm Jonathan Jennings and currently work for Third Coast Digital Solutions. You can read some other thoughts I've jotted down about game development and my love of games as a medium on Quora under Jonathan Jennings as well. And you can check out quite a few of the projects I've worked on, including Thunderjack and others at my Behance profile. Um, thank you again so much for listening, and I hope you keep creating. Thank you. And there you have it. A key thought about effective pre-production from Jonathan Jennings. I, like I said, personally learned a lot from this talk. And you'll notice that Jonathan referenced a few diagrams in his talk. I actually, he sent me the diagrams. I'm going to put them up on the Discord. And there is a specific diagram called the evolution of Thunderjack's log runner. And it shows the evolution over time of the diagram kind of explaining the game mechanics. And over time, you start to see the art style. And I think it's a really good lesson and something that we can start adapting into our own game projects. In some sense, um, I do this in my own sketchbook. When I sketch game ideas, I sketch the screen or, you know, how the UI might look. But I think an idea that you're really going to get a lot of value from is sort of this evolution over time and the iterative process of prototyping I guess. So yeah, big thanks to Jonathan for putting in the work to give us a key thought. He is over on our community Discord and I'm sure he'd love to talk more. He's also on Twitter. That's at JohnnyJ17. And yeah, I guess that's actually how I met Jonathan. He posted a really thoughtful question or sort of discussion starter about I think if I'm remembering right it was about how different genres are a little bit harder to find the fun I think when I joined the discussion I brought up that strategy and simulation games are one of the hardest games to find the fun in so yeah I, I follow Johnny because he has really thoughtful posts like that and if you're on Twitter in a game dev I think you would really benefit from following him and becoming part of the discussion. I'll be sure to leave all the links that Jonathan mentioned at the end of his talks. So if you want to check out the projects he's worked on or reach out to him on LinkedIn, if maybe that's more your thing, you can find all that information in the show notes. So yeah, thank you for listening. Remember to jump on over to the community discord to see the diagrams. Um, that Jonathan was talking about and you can reach out to him and talk to him about any thoughts he had but if I don't see you there I'll definitely see you on the next episode of the Game Dev Field Guide.